It's one of the deepest, richest, most important books of the Bible, Romans. In this message, join Pastor Chris Chadwick and learn more about what the Bible says in the book of Romans. Great singing this morning. Would you take your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, you may be seated and take your Bible as you're turning to Romans chapter 6 there. Romans is really what we often call the constitution of the Christian faith. It is, by and large, the most important book. Now, we couldn't be categorical about this. Everybody would have their own opinion to some degree. It is arguably the most important book in all the New Testament. If I had only one book that I was allowed to have, if, if, if I was going to be lost on a desert island and somebody, or deserted island and somebody said, hey, you get one book of the Bible, what do you want? I have a feeling it would probably be the book of Romans. Romans, because in it we have every major theological position uh, that is in the entire Bible. It is so vital and so important. And we've been studying it now for well over a year, and we're in chapter 6. Romans is divided into five divisions. The first division is found after the introduction, is found in chapter 1, verse number 18, through chapter 2, or chapter 3, verse number 20. It's two and a half chapters long. And it's doctrinal matters related to sin and to judgment. Here's the reality of the first division in the book of Romans. You're a sinner. I'm glad two people said amen. You're a sinner in need of salvation. There's Romans chapter 3 verse number 10. There's none righteous, no, not one. We are all sinners. Romans chapter, the first division, Paul's establishing this through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You and I are all sinners. Well, the second division is in chapter 3 verse number 21 through chapter 5 verse number 21 two chapters, and it covers this topic, that it's a doctrinal passage, all of it's doctrinal, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is imperative that you understand that. Salvation is by grace alone, meaning you can't earn salvation. There's nothing you can do. The Bible says not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by his mercy has he saved us. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Look at somebody next to you and say grace alone. Say it louder. Now look at another person on the other side and say, faith alone. Or say it to the same person. If they're not there, pretend it's your your spouse, your friend, or the person you want to marry. And say, by faith alone, we will one day get married. No, I'm kidding. Grace alone, faith alone. Now, just really loud, say, Christ alone. Okay, so what you've just stated is the whole point of Roman, the second division, Romans 3.21 to 5.21, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, I spent about 15 minutes or 20 minutes because I felt like I needed to in the 8.30 service teaching this. I won't do that this morning. But let me say this. Every false group, every heretical group, every cult group in the world that has ever been always says this. There's something you need to do in order to earn your salvation. Every false group. 
You, you've got to go to this priest. You've got to pray these prayers. You've got to have Holy Communion. You, you've got to go on a mission trip. You've got to give out pamphlets in La Jolla Cove. It doesn't matter who the group is. You always know that it's heretical when they say that there's something other than salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, that there's something other than simply Jesus that demands or that is necessary for your salvation. Jesus, listen to me. Jesus is enough. He's enough. He's all that's needed. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1, I believe it's verse number 7, in whom we have redemption. That word redemption just means salvation. Another way of saying salvation. In whom we have redemption through his blood. Even the forgiveness of sins, all of them, that's what the word sins means, according to the riches of his grace. Section two, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then chapter three, which is chapter six, seven, and eight, three chapters, which is the division we're in now, is the moral, it's a doctrinal passage on the moral implications of the gospel. By moral implications, we mean how Christians, the Christian's behavior is to be different than the world's behavior. Let me say it this way. Because I've been saved, which is a Bible word, because I've been saved, I should be, and, and really, I must be different than the world is. And by the world, we mean the system of people and actions, attitudes, governments, whatever the case may be, that are in opposition to God. As a Christian, I should live, think, and act differently than people who don't know Christ. I'll say it this way. Didn't win the crowd over on that one, so I'll say it a different way. If you're a professing Christian and you act just like everybody you work with, there's a problem. And the problem's not with them, it's with you. Oh, I know that's painful, but it's true. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away, all things have become new. You're to be different than the people you work with, it's a requirement. And so Paul is now writing in chapter 6, and we dealt with this in five, cha- five messages through, from, chap- from verse number 1 of chapter 6 through verse number 11, where he says in verses 1 and 2, the Christian needs to act different than the world. Our thoughts, attitudes, and actions should be different. If you're saved, the Holy Spirit lives inside you. In verses 3 through 5, Paul talks about our identity changes. We are identified as children of God. We as new believers have entered into a new realm of existence and therefore begin the process of changing old habits and patterns to fit a new way of life. We're different. We're distinct. In verses 6 to 7 of chapter 6, the believer, Paul helps us to understand, never falls into sin. We choose to sin and therefore choose to live under its bondage. I mean, it's a, it's a heavy text. It's actually easier to talk about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Because this one affects the way that we live. Not that the other doesn't. But this one affects the way that we live. In chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, the basic premise of this, this section is, if I'll die to sin, I can walk in victory. 
This passage has essentially taught us this, that the grace of God brings transformation to the life of the believer. You're dead to the control of sin, but you are not dead to the influence of sin. And then we jump into chapter 6, verses 12 to 14, which is our text. And we're going to talk about this subject this morning. Practical sanctification. Practical sanctification. Well, what does practical mean? Practical means just the way that we live it. You've heard the phrase, maybe if you've been in church for a while, practical theology. There's what's called systematic theology, and then there's what's called practical theology. Practical theology is just uh, theology lived out in the day-to-day life of the believer. Practical sanctification is sanctification lived out in the life of the believer. Practical sanctification is this. I'm cleaned up by the grace of God and ready to serve for the glory of God. Let me say that again. My life is cleaned up by the grace of God and I'm ready to serve for the glory of God. Again, I want to be very clear here. Practical sanctification is my life is cleaned up by the grace of God and I'm ready to serve for the glory of God. It's powerful. Demi and I were just in Hawaii. We spent uh, about a week on Oahu. We dropped off our daughter, and I'll mention that sad moment later, I think, uh, on Oahu. She lives there now. Worst decision of her life. How many of you have adult daughters? Anybody in here have adult daughters? When they moved away, wasn't that the dumbest decision of of their life? Just dumb. Some of you are like, oh, we're happy they're gone. Well, they'll eventually, you'll feel sad about it. If you have teenagers, you can't wait for them to get out of the house. But let me tell you, you'll regret those feelings one of these days. And uh, I'm at that spot right now. And so we dropped Judith off. And and, uh, then we made our way over to Molokai, where we stayed in Molokai. I stayed in Molokai, I think a total of 18 days. Debbie stayed 10. Uh, I was there before she got there. And then she and I went over for about 10 days, and, and uh, while on Molokai, I snorkel a lot. I, I'll just be super candid with you. I love to snorkel. I believe that uh, water is where every human being kind of started out, and that's where we really should just stay. I, I love the water. Anybody else in here just love the water? If I, could, if I could live my life in a pool, I would. I just, I love it. Uh, we have a beautiful new puppy, and boy, she is just, she is just... <sighs> better than kids. And uh, sorry, Natalie, uh, my youngest daughter's here. She's, she's been a lot of fun and she loves water. And the puppy and I agree on this. We just, I just love water. Well, in Hawaii, I snorkeled and I snorkeled every chance I could get, pretty much. Sometimes two, three times a day, I'd go to one, one bay and snorkel and then one beach and get past the break and then I'd snorkel in the reef out there, whatever the case may be, I'd snorkel. But every time I came back, now, now before I, I left for Hawaii, I knew what to expect, so I bought good snorkeling equipment, which means I didn't buy it at Costco and I didn't buy it at Walmart. I bought the nice stuff, you know, off of Amazon and... Um, 
I got a really nice mask and a really nice snorkel. I got the, the spray, the anti-fog spray. And I know that people are in here going, you can just spit in that. But I was afraid I might have a cold and a big green loogie would just totally mess up the whole experience. And so I, I got the fog spray and, and I'll go snorkeling and I'll snorkel day in, day out and have fun. But every time I got done snorkeling, I'd, I'd grab my stuff, I'd take it off and, and I'd go back to where we were staying. And when I got there... I always cleaned it up. I went outside or I went to the sink and I washed it out. I washed the lens off with fresh water. I washed the gasket that goes around the face. I washed the straps from all the salt water. I washed the fins out. I washed the snorkel out. I dried it off and then I let it air dry outside. And then I put it back in its case so that as soon as I needed it again, it was ready to use. It was cleaned up and ready to use. That is practical sanctification. Cleaned up and ready to use. The reason some in your life are like, I don't know why God never lets me do anything. Because you've never been cleaned up. You're not ready to be used if you're not cleaned up. You have a dirty snorkel. If you want to go snorkeling, you got to go grab the snorkel, take it back in the house, and start that whole process. Practical, listen to me, practical sanctification is being cleaned up and ready to use. It's not a desire to be cleaned up. It's being cleaned up. It's not a desire to do something for God. It's being cleaned up and ready to use for the Lord. Okay, pastor, that's practical sanctification. How in this world am I going to be practically sanctified? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look at verse, look at verse number 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. You want to be sanctified in a practical way. Number one, stop letting sin control your body. Stop letting sin control your body. Now remember, Paul is talking to believers. Paul is talking to people who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. And he is saying to them, let not, or stop, that's all it means, Sin reign in your body. The word reign means to, to be a king or to, to rule as supreme over a nation. I'm going to be a little bit geeky with the Greek language. Not everything always, always the Bible is totally perfect, but sometimes we get a, a little more insight if we, we know the exact tenses and things in which the, the Bible was written. And, and, and let not sin therefore reign, reign being a verb. We understand something a little bit more about this word, if I can be a geek for just a minute and tell you, that is, it is in the present active Imperative tense means don't let sin reign in your body today. It's an action verb. It's going to take work on your part. And it's in the imperative tense, meaning it's a command. You're commanded to not let sin reign in your life. But it's written in the third person. 
Well, what does that mean? Well, I'm not an English grammar guy. I make a lot of jokes about it. But it really is important to help us understand the Bible at times. And, and what is important here for us to understand is that written in the third person means this. It's for the reader to understand that God intends this for the reader and the reader not focus on anyone else. In other words, here's what Paul is saying. I want you to understand, and Paul is talking through the what's called the inspired word of God or the God-breathed word for us, Paul is saying, I want you to understand that this is written for you, to, for you not to let sin reign in your life. So it's not for you to worry about somebody else. It's not for you to worry about your neighbor, your parents, your friend, or a co-worker. This is for you. Well, I knew this person and they really struggled. No, no, no. That's not what this is talking about. Well, if you knew my wife, no, no, I'm not talking to your wife. If you knew my coworker, not talking to your coworker, you, as I read it, me, to the reader, that's why we're saying to the reader, to the person that, that hears it or reads it, the scripture is talking specifically to you. Don't let sin reign in your body. See, you're giving sin authority that belongs only to Jesus. You're giving sin authority because it's ruling in your life. And that belongs only to Jesus Christ, the one who died for you, the one who saved you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Sin no longer has authority over your life. Chapter 5, verse number 20, for where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. Stop giving sin authority that belongs only to Jesus. Stop letting sin control your mood. Well, I just woke up in a bad mood. Well, okay. Control that. Control that. Everybody knows around our house if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Well, mama's got two choices. Either knock it off or get happy. Because mama doesn't have the authority to let her attitude reign. I can see some women in here going, you better say something to my husband. I'm going to leave it right there because you're a bad mood. <laughs> Stop letting sin control your attitude. Stop letting sin control your actions. Let not sin reign in your mortal body. You're not only giving sin authority that belongs only to Jesus, you're giving sin a place that it should not have. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Where's that place? Obviously from the text, your mortal body. Mortal body is just another word for your body, your flesh. There's, there's nothing... Sometimes we make the Bible, most of the time, we make the Bible way more complicated than it needs to be. Can I get an amen there? I'll start this message all over again, feeling I've done you a disservice. We make the Bible way more complicated than it needs to be. Uh, mortal, that's us. Body, that's what you have. Pinch yourself, that's your mortal body. If you pinch yourself and you're not there, we're going to pray for you and have a service. 
your mortal body. Let not sin reign in your mortal body. Now listen, I know what somebody is saying here. Well, pastor, you've preached, and I've heard other preachers preach, that we're supposed to control our minds. And that's true. Romans chapter 12, 2 teaches us that. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse number 3 teaches us that. Philippians chapter 4, verse number 7. And many, many other places talk about controlling our mind, controlling our thoughts, controlling what goes on between our ears. Absolutely accurate for you to have that question. But we can win the battle of the mind and lose the battle of the body. Well, I thought if I won the battle of the mind, I'm guaranteed to win the battle of the body. Not always true. Look over with me, if you would, into Romans chapter 7, verse number 18. Just one page over in your Bible. Paul says, For I know that in me that is in my flesh, mortal body, same thing, dwelleth no good thing. For to will, a desire in the mind, to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Neither if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? I thank God, listen, through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. No doubt we need to control our mind, but Paul is talking in this passage about not letting sin reign in your body. John MacArthur said, sin is personified by Paul in this passage as a dethroned but still powerful monarch who is determined to reign in the believer's life just as he did before salvation. Like my new pulpit. Can't find my water. Well, pastor, you said let not sin reign in my body, and I'm not supposed to let sin control me and give it a place it should not have. What sin are you talking about? Yes. Are you talking about? Yes. Well, what about? Yes. But, yes. Yes. That's what I'm talking about. Do we have to get specific for the sins of our body? Okay, I'll, I'll give you some, but they're not limited to this. It's anything that you could sin with your body. You can write them down. You don't have to write them down. The one I would write down is the one you don't want anybody knowing about. So you might not write it down. But be assured Jesus already has it known. And don't let it rain in your mortal body. Like what? Well, what are some sins you could do with your body? I just wrote these down. Just thinking yesterday in my office. Porn. Uh, It's at pandemic proportions in the church. And our church is not immune to that. Don't let sin reign in your body and porn. 
That's what Paul said back in verse number 11. Be dead to that. And I'm not just talking about the porn websites. I'm talking about Instagram too. Don't make me come down there and amen myself. Okay. I'll bring my notes and we'll have a little family time. I'm talking about porn. Well, that's a man sin. You know the fastest growing group of people watching porn today is young women ages of 18 to 32. More advertising is given to young women the ages of 8 to 13 in the porn industry than any other age. Who say, my daughter will never see. You better be careful what your kids see on Instagram and on Facebook because those are just gateways to soft pornography. Becoming gateways to hard pornography. Don't let sin reign in your body. Don't let it rule you. Don't let it control you. Don't don't let it have influence in your life. Not only porn, sexual perversion of any kind. You are to be sexually fulfilled. Sex is a wonderful thing for a man and a woman as long as they are in a monogamous, monogamous married relationship. And we have no problem here at Canyon Ridge Baptist Church standing on the authority of Scripture and saying marriage is defined by God who created it as one dude and one woman for one lifetime who were born with the proper means of genitalia. I'm not trying to be rude. That's just how the Bible defines marriage. And that's where fulfillment comes in. Well, I can be fulfilled in some other way. No, no. Everything outside of what God describes leads to death. That's why you've tried it and you find it extremely unfulfilling. In the moment there's excitement, but you go home, you feel dirty, you feel destitute, you feel abused, you feel feel maligned. It feels horrible to both men and women. In the privacy and the darkness of the quiet moments, it always leads to death because 623 of Romans says the wages of sin is death. Drug use? I mean, come on. I know that pot is legal, but it's still wrong. And some of you in this room, some of you watching online are addicted to prescription drugs, and you know it and I know it, and you're acting like it's okay because your doctor said, hey, take these, but what you didn't tell your doctor is that you can't go to bed without taking it, you can't get up without taking it, you can't make it through the day without taking it, and you're absolutely addicted. And Paul says, stop giving sin a place that it should not have in your body. You say, Pastor, I need help over that. Come on, let's pray. I want to help you. Come talk to me. There are means of helping people who are addicted. We will help you all day long with that, as long as you'll allow us to help you find victory in that, but do not think for a moment that God is okay with you abusing your body. Don't think he's okay with it. Now that we got the big ones out of the way, let's talk the ones that most Christians have. Laziness. I'm just a couch potato and I just... Man, let me tell you, I love nothing more than a half gallon of ice cream and 42 hours of of Amazon Prime videos. And nobody said amen. And I'm not surprised. So I plan to say amen. Yeah. Thanks, Pastor. 
It's really good. Laziness. Some of your houses haven't been cleaned in a decade because you're sitting on your butt watching TV all the time. And you're so embarrassed by the condition of your house that you can't be hospitable and have people over. Now listen, I'm not talking to a young mother with like 14 kids. Not everybody in this house has 14 kids. Some of you are trying. And we praise the Lord for that. But, but I, and, and I understand phases and times of life. But some of you know if you're lazy or not. And you're letting it rain in your mortal body. Oh, oh. Gluttony. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Some of y'all are like, why did I come? It's Labor Day weekend, but I got a barbecue tomorrow, and this dude is talking about gluttony. Now listen, just because you're skinny doesn't mean you're not a glutton. I married, I, ma- I married my wife. That's normally how it happens. I married my wife. She was 5'7", same height she is now, and 98 pounds. Yeah, we had to put a special strainer on our bathtub so she didn't fall through. Not kidding you. But that chick was a glutton, not for punishment because she married me. She could eat more Snicker bars than you ever imagined in one sitting. Like, Debbie, what do you eat? Oh, nothing? <laughs> nothing? You got chocolate all over your face. No, that's how, that's my prayer language. <laughs> eat another one and another one and another one. You could be skinny and a glutton. Well, what do you mean? Well, this is what I mean. Are you controlled by food urges? I mean, every time you want something, do you go get it? I love, people, people think that I don't like, like bad food. I love bad food. In heaven, I'm going to tell you, here's what's going to happen in heaven. I know this because I've studied the Bible every day of my adult life. I'm telling you, I know this. This has got to be true. You're going to agree with me too. When I go to heaven, I'm going to have a mansion because the Bible says he's, he's preparing a mansion for me. I'm going to have a wave pool because I love the water. I'm going to have a saltwater pool because I love nature. I'm going to have really good snorkeling gear and, and, and really cool fish. I'm, I'm going to have that in heaven. Right next to my house is going to be a rose donut shop. And it's going to be free. And I'm going to be able to eat as many donuts as I want and it not affect my life at all. You say, do you really think that's going to be heaven? No, probably not. But that's how some of you live right now. I don't care about your size. Let's let's remove that issue. The Bible is not concerned about that at this point. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about giving your body over to sin, allowing food urges to control your body. We have people in this room right now. Listen to what I'm about to say. We have people in this room right now that won't go on a mission trip because they can't eat what they want. Imagine the Apostle Paul saying that. Oh, I'd go to Crete and start a church, but... You know that Greek food? I'm just not into olives. I'm being silly, but gluttony. Immodesty. A desire to show off your body for the wrong reason to the wrong person. Gossip. Giving sin a place with your body that it should not have. Using your tongue to destroy somebody. Let not sin reign in your mortal body. 
carelessness about your private worship time. I mean, you're just doing so many other things that you're careless about your private worship time. Even I, I, I don't have time to deal with all of this, but let me even say this. Cutting, which is a very, oh, Pastor, it's just an escape for me, and I just feel relief when I do that. Brother, sister in Christ, let me be super candid with you. We want to help you find victory in Christ. Please come talk to me or our pastoral staff. We want to help you find victory in Christ. But abusing your body that way is not God's means to, to mental, physical, or social well-being at all. Stop giving sin a place it should not have. That's what he's saying. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. And, and then he says this in verse number 12, that you should obey it to the lust thereof. The third subpoint here is you can't let your guard down. You can't let your guard down. Obey means to yield one's passions or give your passions the upper, upper hand. Passions may come. Passions may come. But I understand this. The Bible says in the book of First Peter, I believe it is, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist him and watch him flee. We were on Molokai. It was hot. I'd been on a really long hike by myself. And um, I got back to the, to the place we were staying and Debbie said, how was it? It's great. She said, what do you, do you want anything? I said, yeah. She goes, what do you want? I want the coldest, largest Dr. Pepper I could have. And she looked at me. She goes, you? And I said, yes. Now, there's no stores on Molokai, really. If you've ever been there, it's, it's, it's a very remote place. There's not a single stop sign in the closest store, decent-sized store. There's two stores there that are big, a couple convenience stores. The closest store is 30 minutes away. So I knew that I wouldn't make it 30 minutes, like I'd forget. But there, there's a vending machine, the place we were staying. And I, I, it was only a dollar for a soda. And I went over and I got a soda and I drank it. It's the first time I'd had sugar soda in Idaho. I don't know, probably years. Other than I drank a few of Brother Bernie's just so that he wouldn't. I'm trying to keep him alive for his kids. And, and, and I went and I got and I drank it. And, and just like all of sin, I'm not saying so to sin, but it was for me at that time. It was very fleeting and unappetizing about halfway through. I drank it and I thought, why do people like this nonsense? You have to lose your brain to like this. Everybody thinks I'm serious. <laughs> But here's the reality. You can't let your guard down. You can't let your guard down in your mortal body. Don't obey it in the lust. The word lust means the evil craving or self-indulgent. You can't obey the desire to sin. There's going to be a desire. You're going to be tempted but you can't obey the desire to sin. You can't let your guard down. Don't let it rain that you should obey it in the lust thereof. 
That's why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse number 6, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch or be awake and be sober. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse number 8, but let us who are of the day, talking about Christians, be sober, be aware, be cognizant, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for in helmet the hope of salvation. It's a requirement for the pastor. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 2, a bishop must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant and sober. Sober is just another way of saying you can't let your guard down. Of good behavior, given to hospitality, have to teach. Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walking about, seeking whom he may devour. You've got to be aware. You can't let your guard down. There's, there's just some things you can't watch. No, did you hear me? You say, yeah, my husband watches those rated R movies with, with frontal nudity. Well, dude, then you just watched porn and you need to repent of that. But ladies, don't think for a minute that you're allowed to allow your guard, allow your guard to go down when it comes to those, those Hallmark or Lifetime movies that cause bitterness and inordinate lust in your heart either. You can't let your guard down. Emotional porn is just as bad as physical porn. Oh, amen, yeah. Yeah, you can't let your guard down. Well, why don't you watch it? Because I'd be letting my guard down. Why don't you eat that? Because I'd be letting my guard down. Why don't you go there? Because I'd be letting my guard down. That's why Paul goes on to say in verse number 13, either yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. We're working our way through a very helpful, practical passage of Scripture that's not easy to hear. Secondly, don't make it easy to sin. Not only don't let your guard down, but Paul amplifies it. Don't make it easy to sin. Neither yield ye your members. How would I make it easy to sin? By putting yourself in a compromising situation. So stay away from compromising situations. The word yield means here means to make it available or accessible. Paul is saying stop sinning. And since that's easier said than done, let me help you with what he's saying. Don't put yourself in a place that will cause you to compromise. Every person in this room struggles with sin. Everybody in this room, the guy talking especially. Hebrews 12, 1 says there's a sin that easily besets you. If you put yourself in a compromising situation, it's more than likely that you're going to make your members, the word for verse number 13, that we see in verse number 13, which just means our physical body, another way of saying the same thing, making your physical body an instrument of unrighteousness unto sin. Paul literally is talking to believers here, and he says, you're going to make your bodies an instrument, or a, the word instrument means a weapon or a tool. I'm going to make your, your, you're going to make your bodies a, a tool or a weapon for unrighteousness or wickedness or that which is wrong. So we're saying, don't compromise yourself. The story of compromise is tragically told in Proverbs chapter 7, verses 4 to 9. When the Bible says, saying to wisdom, thou art my sister, and call understanding thy kinswoman, 
that they, wisdom and understanding, may keep thee from the strange woman, a woman that's not your wife, from the stranger which flattereth with her words. In verse number six, the strange woman begins to talk. <clears throat> and she says, for at the window of my house, I looked through my casement, and I beheld among the simple ones. You say, what's a simple one? A dumb young man. That's what it means. A person lacking intelligence or common sense. A young one, because that's what the passage says. I discerned a young, among the youths a young man void of understanding. What was this young, dumb man doing? Verse number nine, or eight rather. He was passing through the street near her corner. He went the way to her house. In the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. He went there as the sun was going down. He went there when the light was still there. He went there when it was dark as night. He started off going once, I want to see what it is. He started off, then he went a little bit later to see what it was like. And then he went ultimately in darkness when it was like she discerned him. She talks to him. She convinces him because he's put himself in a compromising situation to come to her house and the Bible goes on to say this and he goes as an ox to the slaughter not knowing that the dead are there and Solomon says it this way yea many strong men have been slain by her why because he put himself in a compromising situation was it a sin to go to that neighborhood probably not but it was compromising. Hey, some of you young people need to listen to me. Some of you live, live your whole life to see how close you can get to wickedness without crossing over. And then you're shocked when you cross over. Some of you parents are giant legalists. You're huge legalist because you want chapter and verse for your kids before you say, I, I can't tell them no without a chapter and a verse for it. Now listen, there's a lot of chapters and verses in the Bible. That's a dumb idea. You need to walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You put yourself in a compromising situation. Right, there's some friendships I don't have because it would compromise my relationship with my wife or my church family. I'm not going to be close friends with anybody that's, that doesn't like the local New Testament church. I might work with you. I might talk to you. But you're not going to have influence in my life because that would compromise my walk with the Lord. And it will compromise your walk with the Lord. Don't put yourself in a compromising situation. <laughs> it, now, I'm going to sound really old-fashioned. I'm kind of glad. I never thought I would sound old. But now that I turn 50, I'm allowed to sound old. So I said, you turn 50, you don't look a day over 30. I know. Um, <laughs> you don't look three decades over 30. Thank you. But there's a lot of single people that are really like somebody of the opposite sex. Matter of fact, they're really turned on by them. And they have a lot of private conversations with the, that person. 
And then they compromise themselves with the conversations. And then they compromise themselves by being alone with that person, thinking like, oh, I can handle this. I can handle this. I can handle it. No, you can't. You put yourself in a compromising situation long enough. It's only a matter of time before you eventually surrender to the compromise. It's only a matter of time before you eventually say like, oh, man, I can't believe I did that. I'm never surprised. When people fall into sin, why? Because you can see the steps that are taken. I mean, one step followed by another step followed by another step. There's ultimately going to be a logical conclusion based on the steps that have been taken. Part of your role as a parent is to help prevent your kids from putting themselves in compromising situations. Well, pastor, I can't find any reason why I should tell my kids no. How about they're compromising themselves? Can I go with it? That's what he's saying here. Don't yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness. Yield just like, I, I can do this. No, no. He goes on to say, unrighteousness unto sin, but yield your member, yield yourselves unto God. Look for ways to stay away from sin. Just stay away from it. If you struggle with overeating, please stop going to buffets and saying you'll only eat salad. Don't go to the donut shop and say, I'll have them give me an all-grain bagel. Maybe you shouldn't go down the chip aisle. I love chips, man. I could kill some chips right now. I love pancakes. I don't know, if you don't like pancakes, don't tell me. I want to be your friend. And if you don't like pancakes, I probably won't be your friend because I'll just think that, that you're the dumbest person who's ever lived. Like, who doesn't like pancakes? Don't, don't, like, I don't like pancakes. Like I said, don't tell me. Don't tell me. I don't want to know. I know that the Bible says I have to serve the weak and sickly among you. So there you go. I love pancakes. Hawaii is a horrible place for me because they don't really have great food, but they have great pancakes. And my daughter, Judith, just moved to a place. It's called Boots and Chemos, and they have some of the best macadamia nut pancakes. Some of you have been there. And I'm telling you, I order the pancakes, I order extra sauce, and then I order more pancakes, and then I take the sauce home, and, and I put it on Eggo waffles, I put it on grilled chicken, I, I put it on everything. If I lived in Hawaii, I have to stay away from there. Stay away from it. If you struggle with worshiping your body, don't go to a bodybuilding competition. Get rid of your Speedo. <laughs> Get rid of the mirrors in your house. Stay away from gyms. I don't know. Eat a pizza. Whatever it takes. But, but don't put yourself in a compromising situation. If you struggle with porn or extramarital sex, don't ever go out alone. And only go out with someone who can help hold you accountable. Your wife is not your accountability partner. That's the dumbest idea in human history. She has a vested interest in keeping you happy. My wife is not my accountability partner. Two people that I can't stand, my two best friends, they're my accountability partners. And they will, they will dog me all day long. 
Literally. They have no problem. Dude, what is up? Do I need to come? Because if I come, the first thing I'm going to do is hit you over the head with a baseball bat. Why are you going to hit me with a baseball bat? Because you'll knock me out if I don't. Okay. You say, does that help you? It does. That's a biblical accountability. I want that in my life. If you're a lady and you struggle with bitterness, you probably need a happy friend who holds you accountable. You don't need another lady struggling with bitterness comparing notes on how to be better bitter. Better at bitterness. Whatever the case may be. It's, I'm rusty in the pulpit today. Pastor, I need some help here. Oh, oh, let me help you with it. If you struggle with anger, don't listen to talk radio. Or watch cable news. Or antenna news. If you still have an antenna. <laughs> I know some of you do. I'm not, I'm not making fun of you. I mean, it's still 1960 somewhere. Um, don't listen to talk radio. It could throw you into a sinful anger rage. You know you're going to face the greatest challenges when you're hungry, angry, lonely, tired, and bored? We used to just use the acronym HALT, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. But we're, we're learning more and more about people who are addicted to porn and video games. By the way, video games are one of the, the key indicators of an oncoming porn addiction that there is. Now many video games are interactive into porn. You say, well, I don't really like that. All the evidence is there. Both Christian and secular research is proving that addiction to video games, and you say, how do you define addiction? That you constantly are thinking about it and you're playing role-playing games. I mean, we've had people in our church leave their spouse over the years. They've left their spouse to marry somebody that they met on World of Warcraft or some other stupid video game that, they, that they've played. Don't tell me it doesn't have a major effect. And so we're learning that boredom generates an addiction to both of those. So you have to ask yourself, the question, when am I most susceptible? When I'm hungry, when I'm angry, when I'm lonely, when I'm tired, and boredom overreaches all of them. That's when you're going to face your greatest challenge. Some of you dudes who deploy, some of you women who deploy, loneliness, because what happens on deployment doesn't stay on deployment. It always comes home, and it always affects so many more people than you could ever imagine. I should have heard more amens there. It always comes home. I'm hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. And then let me finish just for the sake of time. 13b, Paul says this, the second part of verse number 13. Neither you, verse part, neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Intentionally serve God. The word yield here, the second part, is different than the first. It means to make yourself available, accessible, or to present yourself to the Lord. And it's written, again, I'm going to be a geek for a minute. It's written in the aorist tense, which means it's a one-time act. I'm going to give myself to God for His service. Make yourself available to God. Here's what Paul is saying. You want help over sin? 
make a commitment, an honest thought out commitment to live your life wholeheartedly for the Lord. Make yourself available to the Lord. Be motivated to serve the Lord. That's what he says in the last part of 13, uh, verse number 13. Uh, well, second to the last part, as those that are alive from the dead. Live as though God has resurrected you from the dead because in truth, that's exactly what he has done. You are dead in trespasses and sin. You're alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Live as though you have been resurrected from the dead. See, here's what the church thinks. Like living for Jesus is kind of a cool thing. My God, it's good. As long as it's good, it's good. But I can deal with it not being good. I'll just do my religious duty and I'll go on and I'll, I'll have my days and I'll do it and I'll go to church on Sunday and I'll sit there and then, then, I'll, then, then I'll just live my life. And Paul says, no, no, no. You need to live your life as those that are raised from the dead. Why? Because if you're saved, you've been raised from the dead. That's why he's saying it. That's what 321 through 520 is, all, or 521 is all about. You were dead and now you're alive. Live like you're alive for the one who brought you back to life. The motivation to serve God is found in verse number 13. And your members, again, your physical body, as instruments or tools, same word, as tools, weapons of righteousness unto God. Is your body, because he's talking about the physical body, is your body a tool for righteousness unto God. Would your coworker say it is? Like, oh, dude, that guy, he just follows Jesus. Would your family say that? Oh, she just loves the Lord and follows Jesus. She's going to serve the Lord. Would your internet history say that? Oh, they, they just, they're a weapon for righteousness. They're living for God. Their body's just an instrument of righteousness. Oh, pastor, I think we can give too much to the church. I, I'm, not, I'm not even talking about the church. I'm just saying your body being an instrument of righteousness. We'll talk about that church stuff later. We're talking about Righteousness. Biblical righteousness. Or would your kids say, oh, mom and dad, if you knew my parents, like I know my parents, I'll tell you what right now, you wouldn't think about them the way that I think you think about them. I mean, pastor, come on. No, is your body an instrument for righteousness? We know what it's like to be an instrument unto sin, but is your body an instrument of righteousness? Are you serving? Do you, do you have a place of service for the Lord? Do you, do you have a place 
where you're serving the Lord. We're going to find out next week. You've got to bring somebody who doesn't go to church with you next week because they'll be more uncomfortable next week than you are today. We're going to find out in verse number 16, Know ye not that to whom you yield yourself servants to obey, as servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. Are, are, do you have a place of service? I understand life gets different. You get at different stages of life. We just talked about that a few minutes ago. You're in different stages of life. I understand that with all of my heart. But is your, does your, do you have a place where you're serving? And sometimes that's different. And sometimes it's difficult. I was talking to a family after the 830 service, and because of some situations in life and caring for loved ones who are really, really uh, physically um, towards the end of their life, they love Jesus and passionate, and they said, Pastor, our area of service right now at Canyon Ridge is to come in and greet everybody that we possibly can and show love to every single person we can and pray with them and talk to them. And I said, and I couldn't be more excited about that. Are you serving your kids out of an attitude and a heart of love? Do you have a place of service in the church? Some people are like, I just don't have a special calling. What do you, what do you need? God to come down and like, like make you like a silk path and says, here's the exit for you to clean a bathroom? I, I, just, I just don't want to clean bathrooms for Jesus. I want, to, I want to tell people about Jesus. Well, then tell people about Jesus, but find a place of service. I'm the pastor at Canyon Range Baptist Church, if you didn't know. Some of you probably didn't. I'm the pastor here. This will not be the last place if God doesn't come back early or early. He'll come on time. He, he's not asking me early or late. Sorry. If God doesn't return before I like, get too old, which I'm catching up, um, I won't always be the pastor here. And my wife and I will be members in a local New Testament church. And I don't know where I'll serve the Lord. It might be in the, the bathroom cleaning part. I started my ministry cleaning bathrooms. Be kind of cool to end my ministry cleaning bathrooms. And after being in some of them after a youth activity, it might kill me in the bathroom. <laughs> well, you're the pastor. Won't you always be the guy who talks? No. And my identity is not in my talking, verses 6 to 9 of chapter 6. My identity is in the King of kings and Lord of lords who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't have to talk to be identified with the king. I get to be identified with the king because he loved me and he died for me. Somebody should say amen. Well, I can't keep you all day, but Paul does end with this wonderful passage in verse number 14 that sums everything up. For sin shall no more have dominion or control over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Why do we serve Jesus? Because we're not under the law, we're under grace. God's law is holy, and His commandment is holy and righteous and good, and the the law could not break the, the control of sin. The grace of Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ break the control of sin. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, as we said at the beginning of the message, you can be saved today if you will repent of your sin. That means to recognize and acknowledge that you're a sinner and have sorrow over that and turn from trusting in yourself and trust in Jesus. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. Give Christ your all today. You can be saved today. 
And, and that's what Paul is talking about. For, for verse number 14, let me get there. For sin doesn't control you. You're a believer. You, it doesn't, it's not over you. You're influenced by it for sure. You're not under the law anymore. You're under the beautiful, wonderful grace of God. Are you living like that? Or are you getting so close to the sin line? Or you've crossed the sin line. And your view is that God's just got to take you for who you are. We're going to find out next couple of weeks through chapter 6, 7, and 8 that God expects our service to be motivated by the salvific or the saving grace of Christ. Are you practically sanctified? Are you cleaned up? And ready to serve? Could God come to you right now and say, I, I want you to do this? Or do we have to spend nine years cleaning you up? Practical sanctification, cleaned up and ready to serve. Father, bless our time in the world. Thank you for listening. Hear more messages today at CanyonRidgeBaptist.com. If you're in the San Diego area, please join us for a service. We meet on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 5 o'clock p.m. Pacific Time.